Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Once Upon a Time. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Andrew Murray is one of several gospel preachers that God used to bring about a season of great fruitfulness in church history in the 19th century. Uh, He gave his life to Christ in seminary, of all places. A lot of folks think seminary is where you go to have your faith killed. Um, But he actually then graduated and uh, received his first appointment as the only minister in a remote region of South Africa. Uh, The strenuous travel and outreach to the natives gradually took a toll on his health, and so uh, Murray had to return back to England for a season. Eventually, he came back to South Africa and ended up pastoring a couple churches, starting a couple seminaries, and doing several other things, initiatives that are just amazing uh, that one man could do, and uh, he gained significant experience in his preaching. So much so that through his preaching and writing, he gradually became a highly sought-after speaker. Uh, and was invited to preach at various churches and conferences around the world. Andrew Murray's theology is a, he's a rare cat, as they would say today. He was uh, a blend of uh, reform theology with sprinkles of Pentecostalism. Uh, So just, just to give you an idea of how rare that is, try thinking of something oxymoronic like carrot cake or um, jumbo shrimp, or being busy doing nothing. Um, just That's just how rare a mix he is, uh, a rare breed. During his more than 60 years of gospel ministry in the 19th century, uh, Murray wrote, in addition to the other initiatives that he did, he wrote over 200 books and tracts. And I was thinking about this today. That's even before the invention of the MacBook Pro. How do you do that? Like, wow. Um, But the theme, the constant theme in his writing was how to have a more intimate, deeper walk with the Lord. Perhaps his most famous book is called Humility, the Beauty of Holiness. In this particular volume, Murray makes a profound statement about pride and humility. And it's this. Humility is the place of entire dependence on God and the root of every good quality. Likewise, pride, or the loss of this humility, is the root of every sin and evil. The topmost lesson a believer must learn is humility. One of Murray's arguments in this classic book is this. If the born-again believer can commit his or her life to pursuing Christ-like humility, a whole list of other problems are solved. The parable of the wedding feast is about pride and humility. And Jesus knew that pride was a problem for everybody because we all struggle with it. 
And this is at least one reason why he told this simple story that we'll be looking at today. So we're continuing our series through the parables of Jesus called Once Upon a Time. If you haven't done so already, I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Luke chapter 14 and to pull out the sermon notes that you received when you came in. Um, before we, and if you need a Bible, by the way, just raise your hand and one of our ushers can bring one to you. Uh, before we dive into our text in Luke 14, uh, I need to share some presuppositions on pride uh, so we can understand where Jesus is coming from when he tells this story. Uh, and I think it'll help us understand what was behind his thinking, what he knows about us, and what he knows about himself as he told the story. So here's a, here's a quick overview on what God's word has to say about pride. First of all, pride is pervasive. It's pervasive. A common myth about pride is that only some people have it, but the scriptures actually teach we all have it. Pride originated before the creation account in Genesis when one of God's angels decided he wanted to replace God, was kicked out of heaven, and became the devil. Uh, when studying the scriptures, sometimes we can get a sense of how God feels about a particular topic by looking at how often it comes up in the scriptures, how many times it's repeated. And so, um, while doing research on this subject, I discovered that pride... And its synonyms appear at least 171 times in the ESV translation. It sometimes is referred to as pride, 51 times it is, arrogance, 23 times, conceit, 8 times, haughtiness, 19 times, insolence, 16 times, boasting, 45 times, or it's implied in the text at least nine times for a grand total of 171. Now, please don't miss this. The reason I share, I share these numerical stats with you is this. The Lord didn't put something he hates in his word 171 times because he wants to love it. He put it in there because we love pride and he wants us to hate it. It's in there so many times because it's a problem with humans. So pride is pervasive. Next, pride is also problematic. It's problematic. The first problem with pride is that God hates it, as I just mentioned. Pride is offensive to him. In Proverbs, it's called uh, an abomination in the ESV, which is a more literal translation of the Hebrew text, an abomination. And whenever I see that word, I just think of stuff blowing up and just, just God wanting to just blow something off the face of the earth because he hates it so much. He also opposes those who have too much pride, and he eventually will humble those who don't humble themselves. The second problem with pride is that it blinds us into thinking we don't have it, and in fact, we do. So it's, it's this disease or this cancer that we see in everybody else, but we don't see in ourselves. This is probably what led one preacher to say, pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the one who has it. 
However, I would like to modify that powerful insight just a bit by saying, I think pride is the only disease known to man that we're sick of seeing in everyone else except ourselves. <laughs> so therefore, the question we must ask is not, do I have pride in my heart? Instead, we should be asking the Lord, where is pride in my heart? And how is it expressed in my life? Here's a biblical definition of pride that I've been working on and tweaking for a few years as I have continued to read on this subject. And I, I, if I could put it into one sentence as succinctly as I could, I, I think pride is a mindset that elevates self above the needs of others and against the desires of God. It's a mindset that elevates self above the needs of others and against the desires of God. Now, some of you who have heard a few of my sermons have probably figured this out about me a long time ago. I intentionally choose which blanks I'm going to ask you to fill in and which words I'll have you write down. It's not only an effective teaching tool, but it also highlights the words that I think are most important in the line you're filling out. So in this case, I am, I'm going to show my cards here, I am intentionally trying to engrave in your brain, preferably the front of your brain, uh, self above others and self against God. I want you to get that. That's why I had you write it down and I put it on the keynote screen. So, so on our bad days, pride makes us think, we're better than others, and in our worst days, it makes us think we're better than God, or that we know better than God. And pride is so dangerous to our soul that if we don't deal with it and manage it and try and put a leash on it and cage it up and at least control it, the Lord will. And he does so because he loves his children. And he loves his children too much to let them ruin their lives with pride. And thus our, our big idea for today is this. Humble your pride or your pride will get humbled. Humble your pride or your pride will get humbled. I used to think that people were either proud or humble. I, I thought of it in black and white terms for many years. But in my own struggles with pride, uh, in my research that I've done and in pastoral counseling I've done, I've discovered that we all have a measure of pride and humility. Some people have more pride and less humility. Uh, other people have more humility and less pride. And then I've even found in my own life, it can depend on the day. It could depend on how faithful I've been in my devotional life. If I go a few days without spending time with the Lord, my pride starts to creep up and the humility goes down. But the amount of each is usually determined by the individual's spiritual maturity. 
Because the closer someone gets to the Lord, the more humble they usually get. Because they see more of him, and they see how wretched they are. That's why just about everybody who encountered the, the Lord in the scriptures falls on their face. <laughs> because he's so holy, so pure, so bright, that sinners go, oh my gosh. <clears throat> I mean, uh, you see it in the resurrection account when, when uh, even an angel of the Lord is present. Uh, just an angel and people fell on their face. You see it, you see it when uh, Jesus, I think it's in John 17, was going to be arrested and a, a detachment of Roman soldiers, which is about 600 soldiers, came and Jesus, he didn't even show his transfigured self. He just asked, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes, I am he. And all 600 soldiers went, <laughs> they're armed and got shields and everything. And here's Jesus as one man. And he, he just reveals who he, his, his identity. And fear went into the souls of those Roman soldiers. And so um, we all have both pride and humility. It just depends on where our pride shows up. For example, some people express humility by being eager to serve others, but they express pride by being too opinionated. Or uh, others express humility by being good listeners, but they're too proud to be vulnerable and let people know them well. So you can have a conversation with somebody and go, oh, I just love that person. She's such a good listener. She's so interested in me. And yet you never find anything out about them. Some express humility by being sensitive to the feelings of others, but they manifest pride by being overly sensitive by making offenses out of every little thing. So those are just a few examples of how we all express humility in some ways, and we all express pride in other ways. And what I found in my own life is that we, we tend to focus on the fruits of pride that other people have that we don't struggle with to make ourselves feel better. All at the same time, they're focusing on our fruits of pride that they don't struggle with. And this is why after years of struggling with my own pride, I now say this, I'm a prideful man, but I'm desperately pursuing humility. And I say that because pride is one of those elusive, or excuse me, humility. It's one of those elusive things like a, it's like a bowl of jello. Once you have it, you've lost humility. If you, if you think you've got it, you've lost it. Because this is how wretched we are. We can be proud of our humility. So this brings us to the parable of the wedding feast. I think Jesus told this parable so that we would learn to always humble ourselves just like he did. Now, uh, before we dive into the text in Luke 14, 7 to 11, let me give you a little bit of context. Uh, verses 1 through 6 sets up the parable. And this is where we're told in verse 1, Jesus was invited to dinner at the house of a prominent Pharisee. And he was being watched closely by the Pharisee and his friends to see if they could get some dirt on him. And so Jesus livens up the party by giving them something to talk about. He heals a man 
in the room, and it happens to be on the Sabbath. Well, this is a taboo for the Jews, and he followed, just I mean, Jesus being as he is, he knows it's taboo, and then he follows it up with a penetrating question that leaves his critics speechless. And since those in attendance had put Jesus under a microscope for the evening, he decides to turn the microscope on them and tells a parable. Follow along with me as I read verses 7 through 11. Now he told them a parable to those who were invited to this dinner party when he noticed how they chose the places of honor saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will be, begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher, and then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In the ancient world, banquets were public exhibitions of social status. Instead of sitting at tables to eat like we do in American culture, people in Jesus' time leaned on their left elbows while reclining on couches. The head or host couch was the focal point of the room, and then the rest of the couches extended out, forming sort of a horseshoe layout in the room, like a U shape, so that everybody could see the central couch, the host house, excuse me, host couch. Thus, the places of honor were the seats closest to the host couch. And the further away you were, the lower you were in the pecking order of the, of the culture or the society. Thus, the seats that were closest were the ones that were of great envy. Everybody wanted to be close to the center because if you could be seen as close to the host, you were somebody important. You were valuable. You were looked up to. You were watched. Oh, look at what they're wearing. Oh, oh, weren't they at the party last week? Didn't they sit up front too? Yeah, they know a lot of people. They're, They're influencers in the community. Now, because pride is a mindset that elevates self above the needs of others and against the desires of God, one of the times pride tends to rear its ugly head is when we're around other people. Pride says, I deserve what I want, and I have rights. That's what pride, in essence, says. I want what I want, and I have a right to it. And the reason that Jesus told this parable is given in verse 7. It's an important clue we should not miss. Notice, he noticed how they chose their places of honor. You see that in your Bible? 
There must have been some jockeying for certain positions going on maybe in the room where Jesus was at the banquet he was attending. Maybe folks that were craving attention who had wrapped their identities up in being a status symbol. And so Jesus tells his listeners two simple truths about prideful people in this story. First, and this is letter A on your outline, they think more highly of themselves than others. They think more highly of themselves than others. When they, when they go into a public place, they assume or assert themselves to be up front or in the place of honor. They just walk in the room and they go straight to the front because they feel entitled or crave recognition. Now this is, we got to be careful here because this is not the same thing as, say, when a leader comes into the room and the leader is expected to go to the front. Jesus is not, he's not condemning leadership, you know, when, because his leaders get criticized if they don't go up front and lead. They, they would be criticized for being passive. Uh, Jesus is trying to get at those who are trying to promote themselves. That's his point here. Now, this would be rare in our culture today uh, for someone to just walk in and seat themselves right up next to the bride and the groom at a wedding. Uh, it, it would be, I mean, it would end up on YouTube and go viral probably, but, but instead, what I find a more frequent demonstration of pride that I see at weddings is the wedding evaluation. This is, this is when prideful people, they go to a wedding and they make several comments about what they would do or wouldn't do if it was their wedding. Instead of ju just letting it be their wedding. <laughs> Next, prideful people, they also do this, letter B, they'll, they'll, well, this will be done to them. They'll be embarrassed until they are humbled. They'll be embarrassed. In verse 9, Jesus says that after they are asked to give up their place, he says, you will begin with shame. You'll start the night off embarrassed. And avoiding public shame was a big deal in this culture, in Jesus' day. Uh, it, just to give you a glimpse of that, you might remember from the Christmas story when Joseph found out that his fiancée Mary was with child from the Holy Spirit in Matthew 1, verse 18. Joseph resolved to divorce Mary quietly, and it says in the text, to avoid putting her to shame. So honor was a big, big thing in Jewish culture. Now, you might be thinking, I'm not prideful because, I mean, I've never been embarrassed or needed to be embarrassed to humble myself. Well, if you're thinking that, I just want to say, not so fast. Not so fast. Have you ever considered the fact that maybe you have embarrassed yourself, but you just didn't realize it? Maybe everybody else saw it but you, and they were talking about it after you left. So don't, don't assume, oh, I'm, I'm good, because I would never do something like this. Well, we all have blind spots, 
And there are things we do that people would tell us if they thought we would be open to hearing it. So we need to humble our pride or our pride's going to get humbled. Here's the second thing that Jesus tells us. He then switches in verses 10 through 11 and says, here's what humble people do in contrast. Humble people demote themselves on earth for heaven's sake. I apologize. I think I forgot to mention point one. Prideful people promote themselves here on earth for their own sake. And then point number two is that humble people demote themselves on earth for heaven's sake. So instead of elevating themselves above the needs of others and against the desires of God, humility seeks to meet the needs of others and to satisfy the desires of God. Humility wants to please the Lord instead of fighting against him. Whereas the Bible has nothing good to say about pride, it has plenty of good to say about humility. Uh, the scriptures tell us that humility can lead to honor and long life in Proverbs. A deeper intimacy with God in Isaiah 57. It can lead to extra grace from God in 1 Peter 5. It can lead to promotion by God at the proper time, also mentioned in 1 Peter 5. And, and shall I add that when he promotes us, it's always better than if we promote ourselves. His promotions usually stick, and ours don't. Now, I could go on, but from those references alone, I think we can conclude that pursuing humility is worth it. And if pride says, I deserve what I want because I have rights, well, here's what humility says in contrast. I deserve nothing. I have no rights. I, I deserve nothing. I'm, I'm just glad that God didn't snuff me out and strike me with a bolt of lightning the first time I sinned. That's humility. Now, Jesus tells us two things about humble people. Letter A, they, they lower themselves so others can elevate them. Uh, he, he says in verse 10, sit in the lowest place so your host can then come to you and say, hey, friend, move up higher. Move closer to the head couch. The, the Christ follower that's pursuing humility understands their own depravity, which in turn allows them to be overwhelmed by God's undeserved grace. And so when a humble Christ follower walks into a wedding, he or she assumes they are sitting in the lowest place. They just, they just go to the lowest place. Because that's where they believe they deserve to be. And, and if they don't get seated up front, the humble Christ follower is okay with that. Because they never expected it anyway. So when humble people go to a wedding... Today, they, they don't evaluate it or care who's here and who's not. And, ooh, did you see they got invited? Well, I noticed so-and-so's not here. Did you see that? I'm surprised they didn't get I wonder if they're on the outs or something, you know? Instead, humble people today that go to a wedding just quietly think in their hearts, I'm so flattered they even thought to invite me. They didn't have to do that. Now, a point of clarification, Jesus isn't advocating in this story for some type of society in which everyone 
has the same amount of money, the same standard of living or status in the community. His point is that if we're going to be exalted, we should let God do it through other people. We should not promote ourselves. And the second thing that Jesus tells us about humble people, letter B, is that they humble themselves so the Lord doesn't have to. And this is a key principle, and it helps help me shape the big idea. In verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There are two important things that uh, I want to make sure we don't miss here in verse 11. Uh, at first, it was one of Jesus' favorite sayings. He actually says this principle, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus says it a couple times throughout the Gospels. Uh, secondly, and this is going to get into some extra Jesus here, so bear with me. Um, it'll, uh, it'll make sense here real quick. Luke uses in the Greek text what scholars call a divine passive. How do they know this? Well, the Greek text renders the verb will be humbled, that participle, in the passive voice. And what it means is that the subject of the sentence, everyone, is not performing the action. Instead, the subject, everyone, is having the action performed on them. In other words, God will humble the exalted, and he will exalt the humbled. Now, before we get to our applications, I need to share one more quote from Andrew Murray's book on humility. Um, I think I put it in your worship folder. I highly recommend it. There is a version that's updated in modern English uh, that you can get on Amazon, either in hard copy or Kindle. Uh, he wrote one of the best. It's kind of a consensus amongst evangelical pastors and theologians. In this book, Murray wrote one of the best, if not the best, definition of humility. Uh, it's a little long, but check this out. He says, humility is perfect quietness of heart. It, it, is ex, it is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It, it is to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret and I'm at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around and above is trouble. The humble person is not one who thinks meanly of himself he simply does not think of himself at all. Well, 
Well, I know I'm not there yet, but I want to get there. How about you? I, I want to find that perfect quietness of heart. How about you? Well, then let's talk about how to get there. Here's a couple applications that come to mind. First of all, ask the Lord to show you where pride pops up in your life. This means we have to, first of all, stop looking for it in everybody else. Just stop it. And pick up a mirror and focus on yourself for the next 50 years. You've heard me quote uh, D.L. Moody before. It's one of my favorite quotes by him. Uh, he said, I'm so busy worrying about D.L. Moody, I have no time to worry about the other fellow. He, he's, he was so focused on his own weaknesses and sin struggles. He said he didn't have time to be critical of his critics. Unrighteous anger, anxiety, a critical spirit, perfectionism, unsubmissiveness, being devastated by criticism, sarcasm, defensiveness, talking too much, being consumed with what others think, never admitting that you're wrong, refusing to ask for forgiveness, being disrespectful to authority, voicing unsolicited opinions, jealousy, seeking attention, and blame shifting. They are all fruits of pride. Did I leave any of your sins out? <laughs> They hurt our witness, they hurt our relationship with the Lord and with others. But God's word and his enabling grace and empowering spirit can help us change. So ask the Lord to show you where pride pops up in your life. Number two, second application, make a lifelong commitment to pursue humility. This is, this is in essence applying the the put-off, put-on concept that I talked about in my Colossians series. We, we need to put off pride and then put on humility. We replace it. So it's not, we, we, we don't want to, it's ineffective to go, to, to tell ourselves, don't be prideful, don't be prideful, don't be prideful. Oh, it's prideful again. Okay, I'm going to try again tomorrow. Don't be prideful, don't be prideful, don't be prideful. Gosh, another prideful thought. Instead... <laughs> What God's Word teaches in Colossians 3, and it's in Ephesians 4, is put off the pride. Instead, be humble, be humble, be humble, be humble. When we pursue humility by God's grace and with the help of His Spirit, anger is replaced with gentleness, anxiety with peace, a critical spirit with grace, perfectionism is replaced with Christ-honoring excellence, Unsubmissiveness is replaced with respect for authority. Criticism becomes constructive, and being consumed with what others think is replaced with only caring about what the Lord thinks. In other words, pursuing humility is very freeing. And when we pursue humility... Our witness shines, our relationship with the Lord deepens, and our relationships with others strengthen. Remember Andrew Murray's wisdom, humility is the root of every good quality. 
and pride, the root of every sin. Well, back in uh, 1784, uh, Benjamin Franklin wrote a letter to the son of Cotton Mather. Cotton Mather was a, a lifelong friend of Franklin's. And so he was writing a letter to his longtime buddy's son, telling a story about when they were 18 years old. And so he writes, Franklin writes to the son of Cotton Mather, describing a particular day when Franklin went over to Mather's house. And so Mather, or excuse me, Franklin writes this. He received me in his library and on my taking leave, showed me a shorter way out of the house through a narrow passage, which was crossed by a beam overhead. We were still talking as I withdrew, and he was following me from behind, and I, turning partly towards him, when he said hastily, Stoop! Stoop! And I did not understand him until I felt my head hit against the beam. He was a man that never missed an occasion on giving instruction. And upon this, he said to me, uh, You are young, Ben Franklin, and you have the world before you. Stoop as you go through it, and you may miss many hard thumps. I, I want to encourage you to develop the habit of stooping each day. If you do, you will reflect the glory of the Lord for the world to see. And if you don't, you'll probably get a few thumps on the head until you do. So humble your pride, or your pride will get humbled. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, uh, we just once again are reminded by your word of our complete inadequacy. We share this problem of inherited pride, part of our inherited sin nature, but it's something that we cannot remove or contain or control on our own. In fact, we can't even see it on our own, because it blinds us. And so, Lord, that just, we know in a sense that you like that, because that just makes us more dependent on you. It makes us come running to you and to just fall up in your arms and say, help, help me, Lord. So, Lord, would you, would you please show us where pride manifests itself in our life. Show us, Lord, the ways it manifests itself that we cannot see. And Lord, if it means you have to send somebody into our life to tell us, would you please give us the sensitivity and the maturity to receive that? we know that you did that with the prophets in the Old Testament. And we know, Lord, you've designed the church as a community to mutually correct and hold each other accountable. And so, Lord, if that's something you want to do, please 
prepare us for it so that we can receive it with humility. And Lord, for those um, whom pride has maybe kept them from even beginning a relationship with you, uh, because we know it takes humility to do that. It takes admitting that we can't save ourselves, that we're sinners, that we're lost without you, and that we need a savior. Lord, if there's anyone here today that has not yet humbled themselves and surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ, please, would you help them to do that? Help them to see their sin and to see your holiness, but also to see the love and the grace and forgiveness that you offer through your Son. We thank you, Lord, for loving us while we were still yet sinners. We thank you, Lord, for being patient with us on the days that we are prideful and we think that we are better than you. Thank you, Lord, for loving us still the same. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.